call the biography the gospel according to Matthew. Some of your Bibles, when you open it to the front page of Matthew, it'll say the gospel according to Matthew. And gospel just means good news. Um, and it's Matthew's firsthand account and his argument for why Jesus... And according to Matthew, Jesus is the long-awaited king, destined to restore the relationship between heaven and earth. And Jesus as king is good news because it means this present kingdom is ending. It's going away. The kingdom of suffering and sickness and death and poverty and racism and war is coming to an end, and a new kingdom is coming. A new kingdom is breaking in. A kingdom that will be so good, it'll work backwards to unravel the worst moments of our stories. And anyone, regardless of what you believe or where you are, you can get excited about this. This kingdom, turn on the news and you're like, this kingdom's messed up, it's broken, it's a broken world. We need a new kingdom. And Jesus, Matthew claims, is that king coming to create this new kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we've been covering this summer, we're slowly, it's going to take us like the rest of my life to get through Matthew, but that's okay, you know, each summer we get a little bit farther. We've worked through Matthew chapter 8 and 9 so far, and we've been following along as week after week, Matthew recounts these stories of Jesus healing and his authority authority to heal a variety of sicknesses even sin the ravishes of dark spiritual forces even nature itself and week after week jesus has this authority to heal to correct to fix some of the things in the broken kingdom and last week we saw that jesus is shifting from healing to commissioning his disciples to go out and heal in his name and that's where we're going to pick up in chapter 10 verse 1 this morning Matthew 10, starting verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who's also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who, by the way, is going to betray him. little foreshadowing there. And these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles. Don't enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. There's a new kingdom. Good news. The new kingdom is coming. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those with leprosy. Drive out, you know, real ordinary stuff. Like, hey, go out and raise some people from the dead. Freely you have received, freely give. Now, we usually think of these 12 men as Jesus' disciples, and they are, but they aren't Jesus' only disciples. In Luke, for instance, we have record of Jesus sending out 70 disciples, two by two, and numerous other places. It mentions he has a band, both of men and women, who have committed to become his students. And after his resurrection, we see in the book of Acts, there's a few hundred men and women who are committed to learn how to live and love Jesus' way of life. The 12 disciples mentioned here, though, were kind of like his inner circle. These were the people who were his closest band of followers. They became what we call apostles, early witnesses to the resurrection, and leaders in the church. But they weren't the only disciples of Jesus. And having disciples wasn't an unusual practice. Jesus didn't come up with this. You know, like, no one's ever had disciples before. I'm going to create this new thing. Lots of rabbis in Jesus' day traveled around teaching a way of life based on the Old Testament and inviting people to become students of their teachings. In the first century, the terms rabbi and disciple were common. 
um, if you walked around in the first century and you talked about those things in first century Israel, people would be like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. The term seemed weird to us, like in your workplace when um, a new employee comes in and they're like, hey, will you be the rabbi for this person? And hey, new employee, you're going to be the disciple of this person because they know, like you'd be like, oh, this is a weird language. Like what's going on here? It seems weird to us. But we can simply translate it as teacher and student or master and apprentice, or as I prefer, as Jedi master and Padawan, you know? Um, I'm a nerd. Uh, the simple definition I like to use here at Horizon is a disciple is a student of the way Jesus lived and loved. We are learning from Jesus and we are learning from each other what it looks like to live and love like Jesus. Disciples spent time with Jesus, they became like Jesus, and ultimately they were called to do what Jesus did. And one of those things includes healing and helping, like we see here. But another thing includes making new disciples. The end goal of discipleship is to look so much like Jesus by being with Jesus so much that you end up making more disciples who look like Jesus and spend time with Jesus. The end goal of a mature disciple is always making more disciples. Let's look at the final command of Jesus to make more disciples. This is how Matthew ends his biography, his gospel of Jesus in Matthew chapter 28. Verses 18 through 20. And then Jesus came and said to them, he's been killed, he's been resurrected, he's about to ascend. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Notice the parallel as Matthew ends his biography. In chapter 10, he sends them out to heal and help, like he's been doing. And he says, you go with my authority. It says he gives them authority to heal and help and sends them out. And now he's sending them out to make disciples because he has ultimate authority over sin and even death, which have been defeated. And Jesus is still interested in people becoming disciples of his way of life right now, today. In fact, this is Jesus' very last command the last thing someone says to us stays with us. Think about the last thing that a loved one said to you before they died. Or the last one that someone said before they left on a trip. The last thing someone says stays with us. And the last thing Jesus said was, hey, people who are living out my way of life, go everywhere and teach other people to do the exact same thing. Go and make disciples. Now, everyone agrees. Everyone who has any connection to Christianity agrees that this final command of Jesus is important. But how we define discipleship, the process by which we make disciples, that's what I mean by that word, how we define that will determine the direction of our church, it will determine the direction of your life. I think the most important question that any human can ask is, what is God like? A.W. Tozer said, however we answer that, we unconsciously become like that answer because however we think God is ends up affecting how we become. If you think God is vindictive and cruel and judgmental, guess what? That's probably how you're going to be. If you think God is loving and self-sacrificing, it's probably going to affect who you are. But next to the question of what God is like, the most important question any Christian or church or I think any human can be is, ask is, what is a disciple? What does it look like to become an apprentice of Jesus? How does that actually live out on a Monday? Like when I'm just going into work, what does it look like to be an apprentice? How we answer that will determine how we spend our money. It will determine what programs we have and what priorities we focus on. It will determine whether we are successful or failures. 
Because you know what? Jesus never told us to start churches. We, we started Horizon. We started this church. I think that was a good thing. I don't think it was a bad thing. But Jesus never told them, go out and start churches. He never told them, build massive, impressive buildings or write best-selling Christian books. I don't think any of those things are intrinsically wrong. They just aren't what Jesus scores when he, says, when he looks to see if we're successful or we're failures. Um, I love playing board games. Anyone who knows me knows that I have a rather large collection of board games. Probably too large for an adult man to have, but I, I have it. Amen. 78 and counting. But, um, yeah, Darby looks at the budget and she's like, we've got to cut out board games. I'm like, let's cut out food. We can go without food. We need board games. But in board games sometimes, I'll play these games where I amass a lot of resources. Like I have a lot of berries or I have a lot of stone or wood or whatever. But at the end of the game, they don't actually add points. And so I'm like, I'm doing really well. Look at all this stuff I have. And then I get to the end, and it gets to the scoring phase, and none of those things actually add up to your final score. I had a lot of stuff, but it didn't actually contribute to whether or not I won the game. And when Jesus comes to scoring our lives, he wants us to make disciples, not build big buildings, not have big houses, not have lots of money in the bank. Not that those things are intrinsically wrong. They're just not how he scores our lives. He wants us to make disciples, students of how he lived and loved. He wants us to be with him, become like him, and then do what he did, make disciples. So how do we make disciples? Um, I don't think the issue is a lack of willingness. Most Christians I meet, most people who have some connection to Christianity aren't like, I don't want to obey Jesus. That's why I'm not making disciples, you know? If, if you don't want to obey Jesus, I'm like, why are you even part of this? Like, you know, that doesn't make sense. I think most people want to. But I don't think they know how to. Um, growing up in church, I heard a lot of ought to messages, you know, where you like, the pastor gets up there and talks for 45, 55, uh, uh, infinite amount of minutes, and you're just like, please end, please end. And um, it, the whole message is an ought to, you ought to be doing this, you ought to be doing that, you ought to be doing this. And at the end, I remember as a kid, I'd walk out and I'd go, how? How do I do it? I want to do it. You say I ought to be doing, but how do I do it? And they never told me, but they, they always told me I ought to be doing it. This is not an ought-to message. This is a, a how-to message. Jeff Christofferson, who was over uh, a church planning organization in North America, um, and it was a church planner in Canada, he said this, as once responsive geographies become less susceptible to the skillful merchandising towards Christian memory, we find our tools feeble and effective and dull. And uh, he says it because he's a writer and he's trying to sound smarter than what he is, but what he's saying is the things that used to work to reach people in America don't work anymore and churches and people in churches don't know how to make disciples anymore because what used to work doesn't work anymore. What has worked for generations in America suddenly doesn't work anymore and we're like, we know we ought to make disciples but we don't know how to do it. What used to work doesn't work anymore. I think in order to make disciples today, we must recover what worked in the early days of the church. We must look at how Jesus recruited and trained these 12 men and how he sent them out to train others. Now, this message is not to make you feel guilty. I don't like preaching messages that make you feel guilty because you know what? As a millennial, when people make me feel guilty, I either never come back, I just shut down, or I pretend I didn't hear what they said. I mean, that's just the reality of being a millennial, right? This is not a make-you-feel-guilty sermon. I'm not an expert. I'm learning. I like what Eugene Peterson says. In the company of Jesus, we are all beginners. So we're beginners together here. How do we make disciples? How do we live and love like Jesus and teach other people to, too? 
I hope that this message will inspire you to make disciples with the vision of a better future, a better way to live and love and share your faith with others. You can be an introvert and be faithful about the mission of Jesus. Somehow I never heard that growing up. It was like, you got to get out and talk to a bunch of people and completely change your personality if you're going to be faithful to Jesus. No, Jesus made you a certain way. Jesus measures faithfulness and fruitfulness. He doesn't compare your stats with someone else who has a different personality. Matthew 25, Jesus tells the parable of the talents. He gives one person a lot of money. They use that money to get more. He gives somebody else a little bit of money. They use that to get more. And he says to each one the exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not because you started with more and you made more, but because you used what you had. The only person he doesn't say well done and good and faithful servant to is the person who does nothing. God doesn't compare the speed of a caterpillar and a cheetah. He doesn't say, man, that caterpillar needs to catch up to the cheetah. He, he made them different. He gave them a different design. He celebrates the design, not the distance. Now, the disciples knew how to make disciples because they simply did what Jesus did with them. Now, we can't say that we are mature Christians, mature disciples, until we make disciples. Maturity is not knowing a lot about the Bible. I think that's a big mistake in America even privately practicing lots of religious rituals. In America, we're very individualistic, which means I can have my little spirituality and I don't have to worry about anybody else. That's just not what Jesus taught. That's not what he asked of his disciples. We need each other and we should be building into each other. We are spiritually mature when we become like Jesus and do what he did. What did he do? He traveled around with people and taught them to live in love like he did. Disciples are students of Jesus learning to live and love like he did by being with him, practicing what he taught, and doing what he did. One of the things he did was make disciples, and so we as mature people, as mature disciples, should be introducing new people to the rhythms of Jesus that produce people of peace and agents of love. Now, it's interesting, Jesus drops this bomb on them and says, hey, you need to go everywhere, make everybody, convince everybody to live my way of life, and then the next thing he says is, but wait a minute. Wait for the Holy Spirit is what he says in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 5 before he ascends. The Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting. We can't do this without supernatural help. The Holy Spirit redeems our mistakes, creates opportunities for us to seize. And the very next breath, after telling them to go everywhere, make more disciples, he tells them, but hold on. You can't do it on your own. He makes them wait because we can't do it by ourselves. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but for, to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So first of all, if we're going to be about making disciples, we need to do it Jesus' way, but we also need to wait and make sure that we're relying on supernatural aid. We need the Holy Spirit to be with us and helping us. And you notice what Jesus said first here when he said, go and make disciples, verse 19. The first word is, go. For years, the church has been building buildings and saying, come. Look at our cool Easter pageant. Look at our cool Christmas cantata, you know. Come. Jesus told us to go. Church is a community, not an event, not a building. Instead of asking people far from God to come to us, we must go to them. You're interacting with people who desperately need the good news that the kingdom that is is going away and a new kingdom is coming. You're interacting with them every single day, and they're not going to come here. Jesus says, go there. Um, when I first moved up here to start a church, 
I was like from Tennessee, and I was like, I'm going to use all the things I learned in Tennessee, and they're just going to work great, and I'm going to have a million people in my church. I'm going to be on the cover of some magazines. People are going to ask me to be writing books because I'm just going to do such a phenomenal job. I, I may have a little bit of narcissism, you know. Um, I really thought I was going to do great. So I went out, and I got some volunteers, and we hung thousands of door hangers, and we sent out thousands of mailers and spent thousands of dollars. And guess how many people came from that? One. One. That's right. One person came, and they were like, I really hated my last church, and so I'm coming here. It only took them two weeks to really hate us, too. You know, it didn't take long. Um, and I, you know what? I was like, I wish that guy hadn't come, because that was, man. For a long time, I got a lot of phone calls and emails from him long after he stopped coming. What I realized was people weren't sitting at home waiting for a cooler church to come to the town. They weren't like, you know what? I'd come to church if a cooler one ran, came into town. I had to find a different way to reach them. They were uninterested in church. The exact same way you drive by a mosque and you don't say, I wonder what goes on in there. I should check it out some, some week. We just don't do that. That's exactly how the majority of people are in our city and, dare I say it, in our country and in our world. I began to ask, what is the third place? People go home, they go to work. Where's the third place where they hang out? How can I get there and how can I build relationships there? Because people weren't just going to come because I put up a billboard or I hung some door hangers or they got a letter telling them that this hip new cool thing was coming to town. For too long, we've abdicated discipleship to the church service. Like, I don't know how to teach them how to live and love like Jesus. Come to church. That's how you'll figure it out. Or programs. Um, or if we've um, abdicated evangelism to informational pamphlets or regurgitated arguments in the form of apologetics. Having someone know you and be in a close friendship with you as a passionate follower of Jesus is better than having them come to a church service once. Having somebody that they build a relationship with, that they get to know and can ask meaningful questions of and not feel judged by those questions is going to move them much closer to Jesus than having them come to church one time. The goal, remember, is not bigger churches. It's more disciples of Jesus. And disciples are made not by churches or by programs. Disciples are made by people being with people who have been with Jesus. If we want bigger churches, we just have to offer Christians more perks than the service down the street. But Jesus didn't tell us to do that. He told us to make disciples, not find clever ways to get Christians to gather with us. Disciples are made in the everyday avenues of life, not exclusively within the confines of a church building. That's much too narrow of a focus. You spend way too little time gathered like this. These times are important, but you're going to spend the majority of your time out there, and that's where disciples are made. So Jesus says next, go and make disciples. They were to model what Jesus did. You notice none of them were like, how do we do that, Jesus? He's like, I've spent three years with it. You've seen how to do it. Disciples spent time with Jesus, became like Jesus, and did what Jesus did. I think there were three key elements to how Jesus made disciples. He spent time with people, he shared meals with people, and he healed and helped people. Number one, be together, spend time with people. I believe that the gospel moves at the speed of trust. I'm sure over the years you've sick of me saying that quote over and over again from Caesar Kalinowski. He was a church planter, and his book influenced me greatly. The gospel moves at the speed of trust. If we want the good news of Jesus to move, we don't need to get louder. We need to get closer to people. Richard Baxter, who was a Puritan minister, he said this, If people see that you love them, they will listen to anything you have to say. 
Could it be the reason our culture does not listen to us is not because they're so sinful and wicked and so far from God? Could it be because they think we want their attendance or we want their money? We want confessions of faith from them, but we don't actually love them. Because when people know that you love them, they listen. We need to stop seeing people far from God as enemies to be avoided or overcome and begin seeing them like Jesus sees them, as prisoners to be rescued. Inviting most people to church or to a Bible study is going to be way too big of a jump for most of the people in our culture, and you have to bridge that gap by building trust. We must be intentionally relational at the same time while being explicitly Christian. What attracts someone to Christianity is what keeps someone in Christianity. Um, Sometimes church planners do stupid things. I was a church planner, and I did lots of stupid things. Um, But I heard about this planter that at his first service gave away a motorcycle— 800 people showed up because he was giving away a motorcycle. I mean, I'd show up, and I hate church plants now after planting one, you know? Like, I'd even show up at one. Um, The next week, he gave away a laptop, and 500 people showed up. The next week, he gave away some iPads. 300 people showed up, and then he had exhausted all his budget, so he didn't give away anything the week after, but he's like, I'm going to hold on to some of these people. He had 10 people Um, because what was gathering people? They were going to get something free, right? What attracts people is what keeps people. Relationships are the number one reason in a recent survey I read on why people attended a church or pursued more information about a faith for the first time. We think if we have the right speaker or if we have the right music or the right programs or the right buildings, people will come. Now, disgruntled Christians will go from one church to the next over the music or the message. But people far from God go to church because someone built a relationship with them, someone loved them, and they were willing to listen as a result. People will move towards God when we build meaningful relationships with them. Not relationships where we say, I'm befriending you, but I really don't like you. I just want to see you come to faith so I can move on to the next person. People sense that. But when you really care about people, they'll move towards God. Second, I think Jesus made disciples with intentional shared meals. Dehati Lewis, a church planner in Atlanta, says the apologetic of our time is authenticity. I'm just going to say that again. The apologetic of our time is authenticity. If you want to convince people that Jesus is true, then we should be the most authentic people in America. That is not my experience with most Christians in America. Our dinner tables are the greatest gospel tool that God has given us. Your home is not a fortress to hide from the wicked world. It is a tool to invite people far from God into encounter Jesus. Jesus was accused of eating with sinners multiple times throughout the gospel. The most religious people in Jesus' world kept saying, why do you eat with those people? When was the last time someone religious asked you, why do you eat with that person? You're probably not eating with enough people far from God if no one said that. Darby and I have had atheists and agnostics, LGBTQ2+, um, people and Wiccans gather around our table, and sometimes people ask great questions, sometimes people do outlandish things, sometimes we feel very comfortable, and sometimes we feel very uncomfortable. But what we found is when we welcome people into our home, people lower their guards, and we can have spiritual conversations, and we can share about why we have found Jesus to be good news for our lives and for the world. Number three, healing and helping. Jesus, everywhere he went, healed and fed people. Serving the community builds trust and affirms that you and the church exist to serve and not be served. The church is people, not an event. 
And the church is seen when it impacts the community in a positive way. Most people in our society have a negative view of church. We change that by living out the love of Jesus in practical ways in our community. Jesus healed people. I can't heal, but I can help where there is brokenness in our world. Gospel action creates a bridge to gospel proclamation. I know sometimes people worry, they're like, well, acts of social justice will diminish the proclamation of the gospel. But I don't see that with Jesus. Jesus always taught and healed. He preached and fed. The gospel in action creates opportunity for people to hear gospel truth spoken. It shouldn't be an either or. They work hand in hand. You notice what Jesus said next. He says, go and make disciples and baptize. Um, I saw this so often growing up. We see a non-biblical dichotomy between evangelism and discipleship. I kept hearing growing up, you evangelize the lost and you disciple the saved. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, make disciples. It's all discipleship. Evangelism isn't harvesting. We talked about this last week. Evangelism is moving someone one step closer to Jesus and the church doesn't exist to meet the needs of Christians. We don't gather because this is like our little social club, and we're like here to feel good about each other. The church is Christians. The church exists to reach people far from God. Discipleship is learning how to become a student of the way Jesus lived and loved, and we should all the time be learning how to live and love more like Jesus while teaching others to live and love more like Jesus. Uh, we never graduate from this. It's not like at some point where I'm like, I am now fully like Jesus. And so I don't need to continue learning to live in love like Jesus. We never graduate this side of the resurrection, and we should always be learning and teaching. And next, Jesus says to obey. He says, teach everyone, baptize them, help them become disciples, and then teach them to obey what I taught. Now, this is interesting that Jesus says obey, because here's what most American churches, we've believed about this, that what he really meant was teach them to memorize it, teach them to have the right answers, Obeying it, I mean, if you're really passionate, you can do that. But as long as you know the right answer, you don't have to do it. As American churches, we tend to think of discipleship as having the right theology, but really it's about having the right way of life. Jesus just didn't want people who could name all the books of the Bible. He didn't want people who could just recite different passages of the Bible. He wanted people who did what he did, not just memorize what he said to do in Greek or Hebrew, or copied what he said to do onto colorful trinkets and wall art. I have no problem with colorful trinkets and wall art with Bible verses. But if you don't live up that Bible verse that you've hung on your wall, then it's blasphemous. It's heresy. It's, uh, you're, you're not living it out. You're misrepresenting the God you claim to serve. John 14, 23, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, they will do what I taught. Not memorize what I taught. Not be able to check the right box on a test. They will live it out. And I think the greatest sin in the American church is that we have learned a lot about Jesus without looking a lot like Jesus. We have doubled down on the informational side of Christianity and ignored the incarnational side. And I think society is rejecting Christianity not because they've swerved so far into darkness, but because we've swerved so far into shallowness. Learning the right answers is easy. Applying them is hard work. And as the West becomes more and more post-Christian, we are all left with a choice. In the words of that great theologian, Elvis Dumbledore from Harry Potter, we must all face the choice between what is easy and what is right. Learning the right answers from the Bible is easy. Having the right words memorized is easy. Living it out is right. 
Then Jesus tells his disciples, look, I'm sending you out with this huge task, but I am going with you. Jesus is asking us to go in his name and his power with him. Jesus is already working in your workplace and in your school, in your neighborhood, in your community. He wants us to join him where he is working. We're working alongside Jesus as he draws men and women and children to himself, as he invites people to learn that his way of life is an abundant life. He has promised that we go in his power, and going keeps us in his presence. If you want to experience the presence of God, it's not like hiding in the little corner of your closet. I think that's great. You need times of prayer and intimacy with God. But if you want to experience his presence, him. Work with Jesus to reconcile people far from him, and you will experience the presence of Jesus like you never have before. We do this because the world would be a better place. We don't do this because we're like, man, we want our churches to be bigger, so we want to reach people. We want people to be more moral or vote more like us. We do this because we believe that if people lived and loved like Jesus, the world would be a better place. If people lived and loved like Jesus, they would become the best versions of themselves. Read Matthew 5 through 7, where I think it's Jesus' densest collection of teachings about what it looks like to live and love like he did, to live like a future kingdom citizen, and say, if everyone I knew lived like this, wouldn't the world be better? If I lived like this, wouldn't my world be better? By becoming like Jesus, we become the best version of ourselves. We don't become less of ourselves. We become the best version of ourselves. Um, growing up, my dad's here today, up from Tennessee, and growing up, he loved spy movies. We watched a lot of spy movies together. In the 60s and 70s, I noticed the theme. A lot of spy movies were really conspiracy, kind of paranoid, Cold War, paranoia-themed. And there were a lot of ones where, like, someone would pick up the cell phone, or the cell phone. They didn't have that in 67. They would pick up a rotary phone, and uh, someone would say something like, Lunar. Nuclear, three, two, eight. And all of a sudden, they'd become an assassin. You know, this plumber was going about his ordinary life, and all of a sudden, he had been activated because he was actually a sleeper agent, and he would go out and assassinate the president or something about that. Like, they had these secret agents uh, embedded in every sphere of life that could be activated with a code phrase. Kind of like Winter Soldier. You remember Winter Soldier from the uh, Marvel movies? The last good Marvel movie, right? Winter Soldier. Um... I want this message to be your activation code, not to become an assassin. I don't think that matches the ways of Jesus, but as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, because guess what? He has you embedded in every sphere of life. We have teachers, we have professional people, we have doctors, we have people in every sphere of life. And God has placed you there strategically because you are disciples. You're to live and love like you are disciples. You're disciples. You're to go and make disciples wherever you go. You've been strategically placed in your school, in your neighborhood, in your workplace to teach people to live and love like Jesus. You've been placed in all these places to build trust with people far away from God and share with them about the ways of Jesus. I believe the church exists to change the world because Jesus changes everything he touches. I believe students of how Jesus lived and loved, empowered by the Holy Spirit, can change cities and communities and businesses and homes. Jesus has changed me. And I believe that Jesus is still whispering across the universe 2,000 years after Matthew penned these words. And I think Jesus is still saying, go and make disciples. All my authority to heal I give you. All my authority to help I give you. All my authority to make disciples in my name I give you. Go and teach people. To live and love like I did. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for spending your life interacting with people and teaching them your way of life.
Thank you for coming to die, but thank you for not staying dead. You were resurrected and you ascended, and now we can go with you out on your mission to reconcile people far away from you. May we, may we take this to heart this week, and everywhere we go be reminded that we are living and loving as ambassadors of, your, of you, that we're either removing barriers between people and you, or we're adding barriers between people and you. Forgive us for so often we try to silo our spirituality and just say, well, as long as I'm good, it doesn't matter what the people are around me. May we remember that everyone around us is looking for hope, and you have the most abundant life of all on free offer to any who would receive. Empower us with your Holy Spirit to be bold, to be brave, and to build relationships with people far away from God. I pray all these things like I believe Jesus Christ.